We can't allow the government or the political parties or the political class or establishment, whatever name you want to give the powers that be, we cannot allow them to separate us by Trump and anti-Trump and to get away with this kind of egregious behavior because it was done against Trump. This is This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob. In This Weekend podcast, every weekend, Paul covers the big stories that have appeared during the week at thisiscommonsense.org. In this episode, he discusses stories from the third week of August 2020. On Monday, the title commentary was Students Fight Back. On Tuesday, a glossary for our times. On Wednesday, all dogs go to heaven early. On Thursday, California scheming. And on Friday, today, as we record, Paul presents Right Here in Corruption City, which obviously refers to the musical starring Robert Preston, the music man. But Paul's going to start right here at the beginning of the week. Monday, we touched on really two stories. There is the story uh, from Binghamton, New York, the State University, uh, SUNY Binghamton, State University of New York, Binghamton, where a conservative group, a Republican, college Republican group, was holding a, uh, a tabling session and had uh, a speaker coming to their campus, Arthur Laffer, the Laffer Curve, uh, pretty famous supply side economist. And they basically had a little bit of a uh, 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 pickle with the progress- college progressives who were harassing and abusing and, and uh, basically attacking um, the college Republicans, forcing the cancellation of the speech by Arthur Laffer. And what I think is important about this is that it wasn't just a matter of, okay, some left-wing lunatics, Antifa wannabes, uh, decided to cause trouble. This was facilitated by the university. The university in the end, uh, basically said, um, you know, it's no big deal that the mob, you know, destroyed the, the posters that were put up, uh, harassed the people who were tabling and trying to discuss issues of political importance, public policy issues, uh, and promoting this, event. But in essence, the university was on the side of the harassers, the silencers. And uh, this is now something that's going to be going to court. Uh, thank goodness. And, uh, and really, thank goodness that we have some of these different groups, uh, individual, uh, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, FIRE uh, is, a, is a big one. Uh, as well as, I believe it's the Alliance, um, gee whizzikers, I can't see the, uh, the name of it here, and I'll probably get it wrong, but I believe it's the Freedom Alliance uh, that, that handled the case or is handling the case uh, uh, at the uh, SUNY Binghamton. But it reminded me immediately of, of course, another case from Fordham University, where a young man of Asian descent, uh, he's Chinese, uh, posted two pictures on his personal uh, uh, social media. Uh, His name is Austin Tong. And the first picture was of uh, David Dorn, who is a black police captain in New York who had been killed and, you know, he basically, the, the caption on the uh, video basically said that, uh, you know, uh, Black Lives Matter ought to be concerned about this black life, the life of David Dorn, who was a police captain and who was uh, murdered by people looting in New York City. Um, the, that particular post... Uh, was one of the ones that was cited. Another post that was cited was uh, Austin Tong holding a AR-15 
and pointing out that it's the anniversary of the Tiananmen Square massacre. And of course, the obvious, uh, uh, you know, message is if we had, if, if the folks in Beijing in 1989, when students peacefully held uh, Tiananmen Square in protest for, for weeks, if the people of Beijing and China and, uh, had been armed, had been free to own weapons, there's no way that their government would have been able to massacre them and open fire on people, uh, killing thousands. And, and anyway, seemed to me to be two very, uh, I happen to agree, but whether you agree or disagree, uh, he's making a point about the Tiananmen Square massacre and the right to bear arms. And he's making a point uh, that black lives matter even when they happen to be a police captain and that uh, folks shouldn't be murdered. And yet he is told by Fordham University that he has been threatening that these posts uh, show bias and, and are, are threatening to the rest of the Fordham University community. And he has been told he cannot, he may not be able to return at all, but that if he can complete his senior year, that he must do it on a uh, virtual basis that he's not allowed to step foot on campus. And, you know, this, if, if, if one of these kind of insane incidents where someone is using their freedom of speech to say something that just seems to be to most people, I think, incredibly reasonable and is slapped down by the university, which is supposed to be a place where free speech reigns uh, even more supreme than, than otherwise, a place where you encourage people to speak their mind. Uh, it just, but it's happening all the time, virtually everywhere. And uh, this is, this is uh, really uh, a, a threat to the core idea of America, which is freedom of speech. And um, interestingly enough, what uh, FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, which has taken Tong's case, uh, one of the things they're using is that these universities uh, are oftentimes telling students that they have freedom of speech and that their right to speak out and, and, uh, and say what they believe uh, is, is sacrosanct on the campus. And then, of course, if they get to the campus and you know, what they have to say doesn't fit in the kind of lunatic, uh, new, everything, everybody's a racist uh, 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 or progressive lingo. You know, if they, don't, if they don't hit the right notes, all of a sudden they don't have freedom of speech. And so uh, oftentimes what is uh, uh, most effective is showing that in essence, these universities and colleges are being fraudulent in telling people they have freedom of speech and that they respect it. And then in reality, only respecting freedom of speech that is approved by the left-wing lynch mobs uh, that are out there to in effect lynch any speech that they don't like. In the case of Tong, I mean, we sort of wonder about is the Chinese government putting any pressure on Fordham? I presume that's sort of has come up somewhere. Is that, do you think that's the case? Um, you know, I think it's it's very, very uh, believable. I don't know how likely it is, whether it happened or didn't happen, but you would have to have uh, your head in the st sand not to be at least asking that question. And I'm glad you brought it up because as I was I was talking about uh, this case, it was something that I wanted to remember to to point out that uh, so many of our universities uh, have these Confucius institutes that are funded by the Chinese government, by the Chinese Communist Party, the Chi Nazis, uh, the same people who put one to two million Uyghurs in concentration camps and and, you know, have have uh, organ harvesting uh, policies in their in their prisons. And I mean, this is is this is. Nazi Germany in the early days, maybe not so early days 
uh, and it's sitting and happening right in front of us. And the most frightening part about it is the reach that they have into our universities. Uh, China is sending a lot of students abroad. It's been a huge issue in Australia. But the same thing's happening in the United States. And I think the United States has just been a little slower to pick up on what's going on. But they are using these Confucius Institutes and the money they're pouring in to win friends and influence people. And then when something is said on campus that might not uh, be nice, like, gee, stop destroying the freedom of the people of Hong Kong. Gee, I don't like uh, the idea that there are millions of people in concentration camps being browbeat and tortured to renounce their Muslim religion. Uh, you know, in the, in the United States, if someone said something anti-Muslim, it would, you know, every progressive group, every university, every, every newscast, you know, there'd be condemnation. Uh, but the Chinazis in uh, mainland China are, in essence, uh, wiping out the Muslim religion as it applies to the Uyghur population. And it, the West, uh, the rest of the world has been awfully slow in doing anything about it. And so we now have, we've had numerous cases in just the last couple of months of professors working on, on different research projects at universities who are found to be taking money under the table from China or not reporting the research projects, in some cases, uh, very sensitive research projects that they are doing with folks in China and under the, the thumb of the CCP. Um, so yes, Tim, it, it very likely could be that, uh, that there were some calls made by people who had spent big money at Fordham University. I don't know, but I know that around the country, around the world, that is the playbook of the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, is to ingratiate themselves with folks by pouring money in and then using that leverage to try to silence any dissent about their completely totalitarian rule. But it doesn't look like we really need help from China because in the other case with Arthur Laffer, that doesn't look like a China thing at all. That's just the student mob and the college going on the student mob side. And all around the country, especially nearby for me, Portland, Oregon, we have uh, you know rioting going on and quite horrific crimes uh, associated with it. And the Democrats have been defending it all along. All my Democrat friends, it seems like, uh, two or three of them on Facebook, have defended the protests all along and saying they're just protests, they're not riots. And now that they're having real violence, they just, they've shut up. Well, and there's been a big disservice done by the media by not. I have seen some things on face on uh, uh, YouTube. And in fact, Tim, I, one of them was a, a link you sent me uh, that are grotesque, just horrifyingly grotesque in terms of people being brutalized. Um, and I haven't seen any of it on the news. It's on YouTube, it's different places if you can find it, but it does seem like there has been a blackout on bad news about the protests turned riots. And I don't want to cast any uh, aspersions on anyone who's peacefully protesting. But when you destroy stuff and threaten people and commit crimes, uh, that's not protesting, that's rioting, that's hooliganism, uh, at the best case, it's vandalism. And you know what? Vandalism is a crime because somebody owns that property and it's not you. And so all of these, you know, we have this left-wing mob and it doesn't mean everyone who's left-wing is part of it. Don't, don't take this and, and do silly stuff with it. It doesn't mean every Democrat is a bad person. Every liberal is a, because everybody's not part of this. But there is a mob out there in many cities doing terrible things. And it seems to me that a free press ought to bring those pictures and stories to the American people so that we can decide what sort of things do we need to do to make our society better? Where are these protests right 
and we ought to change the rules and the laws to reform. And where are these not protests, but riots and violence and threats and intimidation and everything that we don't want in our in our public life? Where is that the case? And how do we stop it? And of course, if the media doesn't bring us any of these stories, if we're not even sure it's really happening, uh, if the only story is bad police be- behavior, then we miss part of part of what's going on, and we can't take action. And so, you know, I, I think I think again, uh, and and we this is a common theme here, uh, no surprise, but it's it's really scary. I think some of the things that are happening in the country are so scary, but to me, the scariest of all is that so often our news media either doesn't tell us about it or only tells us select little tidbits of it that fit their narrative. And, you know, you are not, if if you have a narrative that you're telling, you are not a journalist. And the problem is that most of our media is not journalists. There's very little journalism going on in the United States of America. It's almost all storytelling. Sometimes the stories are truer than others, but it's storytelling. And by golly, it'd be nice to get news stories that give us the facts and let us decide. And I'm convinced that if American people have the facts, they're going to be 100% in favor of criminal justice reform. And they're also going to be 100% in favor of arresting people who commit crimes and protecting businesses so that they can open their doors and sell things and make money and hire people. And those people they hire can pay the rent and the landlord can buy a new car and the car manufacturer can make money and hire more people. I mean, what we have at the end of of the first lockdown is instead of people being able to go out and do what what we do to make the economy run, we have all these different cities and different businesses that have been locked down under violence. And, uh, and that's, you know, it has been kind of ignored as if somehow, you know, their suffering doesn't count. But everybody's suffering counts. And when it's at the hands of our own government or the hands of rioters who our government won't get a handle on, then that's a serious problem. We got to do something about it. Well, I believe it's uh, it's part of the anarcho tyranny plan. And I believe that some people in power, and I think it's the CIA and the people who are directing it, I think, you know, probably goes right to Brennan and that, that crowd. Uh, they have, they have a reason they want to do this. They want a race war. They're trying to gain something from this. And I don't think it's good. But that we can't say for sure because we don't know. But uh, that's my big suspicion. You know, I don't I don't want to uh, guess as to who's doing what. But I think we can say things that are true and troubling without making any jumps. And that is, I think there's a reason why there are so many conspiracy theories and they have so much resonance with regular people like you and me and the folks listening to this, it's because we know darn good and well we're being lied to. We know we're not getting the full story, and we'd like to know the full story. And so somebody says something, and no, it may turn out later, oh, that was just a bunch of hooey. It was just a big conspiracy theory. Well, so the the thing is, some conspiracy theories are correct. There was a conspiracy. And some conspiracy theories are incorrect. That wasn't what happened. But at the base of it is that we feel, and it's, it's not just on the right or on the left. You know, we, we had the truther, the 9-11 truther folks. We've had all kinds of the, the uh, QAnon. The, and, and I think why these conspiracy theories have so much energy among us is because we know we're being lied to. And so we'd like to, you know, we, we have to listen to what somebody says might be going on because we know what we just read in the paper in the morning was so incomplete that there's more going on. Yeah, I just wrote about this actually this morning while we were waiting to do this. Uh, and my point was, 
like that, but with another twist on it, is that when when your side, whatever our, your side is, uh, when your side lies or evades the truth, that has a, a dual effect. Your in-group has an esoteric reaction. You solidify behind that because it sounds good. It's your narrative, right? Right. But the other groups, when they find out there's lies there, they tend to react and completely wholesale reverse the narrative. Right. Uh, and that's fine if you are actually telling a complete lie. Because then the opposite of a complete lie is is a truth, probably. But what if it's a half truth? What if what you're saying is truth and false together, and the other people completely invert the apparent narrative, and thus come up with something like QAnon? I'm assuming QAnon is not true, though I'm not. I have nothing to prove against it. I have no proof against it. So I, but the point is, is that when you have when you lie or evade the truth and tell half truths, you can get the absolute opposite of your uh, of your opinion of your narrative and you create your enemy you create polarization yes yes that's exactly true which which actually kind of leads us to uh tuesday's commentary a glossary for our times we talked about covid19 and about the uh the coronavirus sars cov-2 and the fact that you know, that's the name of the virus. But of course, once you have the illness, it's COVID-19. And we wanted to make the point that uh, it is important to understand your terms and to understand the difference between, you know, the, uh, the virus and the disease. But we also uh, realized there was kind of a... Uh, an analogous situation, uh, because it seems to me that more citizens are affected negatively by a different virus that's popularly known as TDS. That's uh, Trump Derangement Syndrome. You've heard of that, Tim, I think. Yeah, I, I have heard it. <laughs> uh, and maybe we should call the disease that, that uh, comes from it uh, TDS 2016, because that's when... Uh, that's when the the virus uh, was implanted in America. I guess we could argue that that uh, some of the implant uh, implanting happened right when he uh, went down the the uh, escalator at Trump Tower. But uh, but in essence, um, you know, we we if you think back, you didn't have much uh, Trump derangement syndrome, or at least most of it, early on was on the Republican side, as a lot of the Republican establishment couldn't believe that here is, here is this you know, guy who's never run for public office before who is leading the pack. Uh, and it was, uh, what was it, 17, 19 Republicans uh, that were originally in that field. Um, and of course, early on, if people remember, uh, the Democrats were sort of chuckling. I remember on uh, Morning Joe on MSNBC, they had Trump on all the time and they treated him very nicely. They seemed to like him. And then as soon as he got the nomination, they didn't like him very much at all. Uh, and so anyway, it 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 seems to me that uh, uh, the the Trump derangement syndrome is a pretty serious disease. I, I have been shocked at how many people, people I have a, a ton of respect for uh, generally and, and still do, but, uh, but I, might, I might have to close one ear when, I, when they go on and on and ranting about uh, Donald Trump because I think there's this view somehow that uh, you know, they're, they're, the world was a perfect place uh, before Donald Trump got elected. And I just, this isn't really part of, it wasn't, something that we included in this commentary. Uh, but one of my biggest fears is that almost everyone who is screaming that the United States is headed to a dictatorship and that Trump is, you know, going to take over, won't leave the White House if he loses the election, so on and so on and so on, um, that if someone else is elected, they will go back to sleep. And and one of the reasons that, frankly, I think uh, I think the American Republic 
in a lot of ways is safer today than any time I can remember recently. And the reason is this. This is a this is a tangent point I'm making here, right? Because it's not in this commentary. But uh, Obama could have done almost everything, almost anything, and gotten almost unanimous applause from the National Press Club. I think our media was more asleep during the eight years of the Obama administration. And I, I guess some of it was just they wanted him to be successful. They didn't want to, you know, and, and you know, it's not as if, uh, uh, you know, it's not as if he, you know, he wasn't shooting people on Fifth Avenue at, at, at dawn or at, at noon. So, you know, it's not as if, uh, you know, I'm not suggesting that they should have ridden him out of town on a rail or impeached him 72 times or anything. But the media, in essence, never held Obama to account. And in his entire eight years, he never got the scrutiny that Donald Trump gets every minute. And I'm I think sometimes the scrutiny has been over the top and has been political and we'll get to to the thrust of, of this commentary, which is along those lines here in just a second. But, but as much as I think it has been over the top, I want a media that is a watchdog and that is looking, kicking the tires and looking under the hood. And, and so I won't complain about them kicking the tires and looking under the hood uh, uh, of Trump, the Trump administration, but I sure can notice that they weren't doing the same thing during the Obama administration, and they weren't covering the Bush administration in the same way, and they didn't cover the Clinton administration in the same way. So uh, dial back the, the, the craziness, the over-the-top over uh, uh, twisting things that Trump says to make them as bad as humanly possible, but keep the watchdog, keep the aggressiveness and let's apply it to the next guy who comes in, whether it's Biden in, in a few, you know, in, in a number of months or whether it's someone four years from now, be they Republican or Democrat or libertarian or whatever. The press ought to be a watchdog. And it's not merely uh, that they're kind of over the top with Trump. Uh, it's that they were so lapdog with with President Obama. And, and so just to, to wrap up this, uh, the thrust of this commentary is really this, that it's interesting that the Trump derangement syndrome is most deadly when there are comorbidities. And that's the same thing with the, the coronavirus and COVID-19. If you get COVID-19 and you're a young person and you don't have any underlying health issues, the chances are slim, under 1%, uh, that you would die of it. If you have other issues, diabetes, heart disease, um, breathing problems, emphysema, uh, then you're in a lot of trouble. And in essence, part of the reason why I think the Trump derangement syndrome is so harmful uh, is that it has hooked up with a lot of people who have comorbidities. Uh, and we suggest that a couple of those comorbidities are things like uh, wokeism, you know, the idea that uh, everyone needs to say everything and think everything just the way you do because you're woke. Uh, the idea that democratic socialism is going to give everybody everything they want. Uh, these are, are ideas that have, in essence, uh, uh, you know, given us this idea that government should do everything for us. And Donald Trump, and, and this is, uh, I think, something that, that it constantly amuses me, uh, Donald Trump, by not taking over, uh, is somehow has done a horrible job with, the, with the dealing with the virus and the pandemic. And yet, these are the same people who constantly uh, warn us that Trump is going to take over and, and you know, rule over the country as a dictator. 
Well, yeah, that was my favorite passage, the comorbidities passage. Uh, you also mentioned sense of entitlement and the polarization of the country as well. Your Wednesday piece, though, was very different. Yes, it was. Um, and it was fun. It was a little, uh, may, maybe it was uh, the lighter side. In a grim way. <laughs> in, in a grim way, yes. It, it's funny that maybe, maybe that is a commentary on our on the state of the world that uh, that Wednesday's piece is the lighter side. Uh, the, the title was All Dogs Go to Heaven Early. A uh, little takeoff on that wonderful kids flick, uh, All Dogs Go to Heaven, which is true, by the way. I don't know if you, if anybody knows that, but it's absolutely fact. I was not and, aware uh, of that, by the way. I wasn't aware. Okay, <laughs> thanks for sharing. <laughs> That's right. I don't have the study in front of me, but but basically, uh, Kim Jong Un, Un, who uh, uh, rules North Dakota, uh, or North North Dakota. I always do that. I anytime. Half the time when I'm talking about North Dakota, I say North Korea. And half the time when I'm talking about North North Korea, I say North Dakota. Anyway, it's not. At least anyway, you don't say North Carolina. Not... That would be that would be bad. Wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, I wonder why I don't. I guess uh, I guess uh, too many syllables in Carolina. But uh, but the North Korean dictator has decided that he needs to confiscate everybody's dog in North Korea. And of course, um, in kind of classic totalitarian fashion, and, uh, you know, probably uh, from a technological and effectiveness standpoint, the most totalitarian regime in the world is China. Uh, but in, in terms of, of I guess, kind of a more primitive totalitarianism. Uh, it's North Korea where, you know, they just, the control, uh, it's, it's, it, it makes the idea of a police state uh, seem kind of light and airy, <laughs> you know, fluffy. Uh, uh, it, you know, you, you don't have the same sort of, uh, uh, you know, social, what is the, uh, I'm going to forget the name of it, Tim. What's the social uh, thing that the Chinese use? Yes, the social credit system, where literally they, you know, they have an app on their phone that's uh, if they paid their bills on time and if they, you know, didn't say something bad on WeChat and so on, they have a certain score. Uh, North Korea doesn't seem to be that technologically advanced, but in terms of beating people to death, if they don't say the right thing or do the right thing, they've got that sort of totalitarianism really down pat. And, uh, and of course here, uh, they make the argument and, and, uh, we're, we're getting reports, you know, from South Korean papers and different things. It's hard to get solid news well it's hard to get solid news out of new york and washington dc now that i think of it but it's really hard to get solid news uh you know out of uh, what is it Pyongyang or uh, uh I, I didn't say that right but north korea and um and so what we find is that they are grabbing everyone's dog and the the reason they're doing it supposedly is that having a dog is a bourgeois Western thing and that they don't want any of that bourgeois Western values coming in. Apparently, uh, you know, I, I've always kind of liked Western values, but now that I realize that liking dogs is a Western value, I'm, I'm even, I'm even higher on, uh, I even give another thumbs up to Western values. But of course, what is likely happening doesn't have anything to do with bourgeois values. It has to do with the fact that totalitarianism is not a very good political uh, uh, economy to have because it always tends to have a control economy, a command economy, instead of a dynamic productive economy. And so the bottom line, there are people starving in North Korea. Not North Dakota. North Dakota, they're growing lots of food. They're doing wonderful. And they probably can get us a little extra gas. But, uh, but in North Korea, people don't have enough to eat. 
and the strongest suspicion of of uh, the watchers of the hidden kingdom, uh, uh, their suspicion is that uh, there's enough starvation that he's grabbing the dogs so that he can uh, cook the dogs and feed people. It seems like a really weird way of going about it because it can't last long. Even if we took all the dogs of America, how long would we have to, how much food would we have? Yes. Yes. No, it's not. Well, and, and, you know, it's interesting because, and this is a little tangent point, but uh, when, when the coronavirus first broke uh, and they believed it had come from these wet markets, which are markets in China where people are selling exotic animals and, and so on, some for food, some for other, you know, as, as pets or what have you, um, but mainly for food and delicacies. And, um, and in these markets, uh, they're not very sanitary. There have been a number of, of, you know, diseases that have come out of those. Uh, and, and so that was originally the idea, is that the, it was coming from the, the wet markets. Now then later, uh, you know, it was, it was determined that, uh, or it wasn't determined, but it was, it was alleged. And there's some question as to whether it didn't come from that lab and in, in Wuhan, the one that, that, uh, that the United States has actually invested in. And that was supposedly doing, uh, some, some research to try to create more dangerous viruses, uh, in the lab safely, so that they could figure out how to protect us from those tougher uh, viruses. And of course, the key being safely, because if you're going to create super viruses that are really dangerous so that you can practice stopping them from killing us all, it's really important that you not let those killer viruses out. Uh, and so there is some uh, chance that this coronavirus did come from those labs, and there is some chance that it may have come from those labs and been created in a research effort, which the goals of that research effort are, are good, but the methods by creating these kind of super viruses, uh, there's a lot of debate as to whether that makes any sense or not. In California, they have a command economy too, at least for one or two industries. Every place has some commands, right? I mean, every around the world, it's a yes. just of states. And, but they're having problems with their electric grid. And that's what you dealt with on Thursday. Well, and, you know, they've had problems for a, a long time. And, and the problems, oftentimes when, you know, I can remember, I believe it was uh, uh, 2006, 2008, I could be wrong. Uh, I'm just kind of speculating, but 10, 15, 20 years ago, uh, I have a poster in my basement uh, that someone made about the rolling blackouts uh, in California where they were and maybe some of them were rolling brownouts where they just reduced electricity and stuff. But this is this is not new in California for a long time. They have had policies that have have just created problems for them to get the energy they need. And, you know, you, lots of people can talk about how, well, we should really cut back. But you know what? People want to be cool in the winter and they want to be heated or, or cool in the summer and they want to be heated in the winter uh, and they want the lights to go on and they want the car to take them to the job because they got to go to work so they can make money to pay the mortgage. And uh, and so, you know, this idea that somehow we, we don't need energy except if it's only this type of energy or that type well california's been been making energy policy with this sort of go green progressive attitude for a number of years and it has been a disaster uh we also mentioned the vagrancy problem in california you know they've had a they just have a huge problem now with all kinds of vagrants People on the street, um, and some of that is is look. The the problem is that California is warm and sunny, and people who don't have a roof over their heads tend to like to go to warm and sunny places and not freezing cold places. But um, but all of these have been exacerbated uh, exacerbated by policies. Um, when people complain, for instance, about 
the the bums they find on the street in San Francisco, and I know you're not supposed to say bums, but uh, but it seems like they're bums and they're on the street in San Francisco. So I don't know where we, I can't ignore them anyway, but you know, you'll have people who visit and I've been there many times. I know a number of friends who, who live there and you, you talk about it. And I always try to remind people who aren't aware of it, that in, in San Francisco, they pay a stipend to homeless people. I believe it used to be 360 or $390 a month, something like that was the stipend you got for being a homeless person in San Francisco. So in essence, San Francisco is paying people to be homeless. Uh, and, and hey, the markets work. They've got plenty of them. So it's, uh, uh, there's a little bit of madness going on there. And, and it's sad because it's a, it's a beautiful place um, and got a lot of wonderful people like everywhere else in the world. And it's, it's too bad. Uh, to see what's happening. Um, but but the, the real thrust of what we talked about was off of a, a piece that Scott Shackford uh, wrote at Reason. And it was about the fact that Democrats in the assembly want a wealth tax. And they want to force the richest people in the state to have to pay, uh, you know, more money. And, you know, the interesting thing is the problem in California, and we looked specifically at these rolling blackouts, the problem is not that somehow California hasn't had the money to offer services. They're offering all kinds of services. The problem with the energy sector in California and getting enough energy at a cost that's affordable so that people can be warm in the winter and especially in California, cool in the summer or in the warmer times. All of that is, it, the problem has not been that California's government doesn't have any money and that it's just, you know, pinching pennies. Um, the problem is that they have had all kinds of money to throw at different problems and all kinds of, of uh, uh, legislation to mandate different things to turn California into a progressive wonderland. And the result has been terrible. Um, they, you know, you have this huge problem uh, with energy there. And it seems to me that those sorts of problems start to create other problems. For instance, if you've got a, you have a big industry uh, where you're manufacturing something, you know, there are all kinds of things you'd have to worry about if you're deciding to move to this state or that state. But it seems to me that if one of those states, you have the sense that you might not be able to get enough electricity to your door to make the machines run that produce the products that you then ship to market and make money off of, that's not the state you're going to. And so, um, you know, there's there is some bad things happening in California, and the solution is not to try to tax the rich so that politicians can continue to wheel and deal and make new bad policies and throw a lot of money at them. And especially, we didn't mention in this uh, particular piece, you know, these commentaries, if you've only heard this podcast and you haven't gone to thisiscommonsense.org, we have five commentaries a week, one every day, Monday through Friday, and then, of course, the podcast on the weekend. But these commentaries are short, usually 250 to 300 words, lots of links that give you the information to go find out more yourself. You might not agree with me. You might get some more information and say, oh, Paul didn't. He didn't mention this thing or he didn't see it this way. Uh, so we try to give you the information. But these are short commentaries to express uh, what I see as a pro-freedom uh, bias, very strong pro-freedom bias uh, uh, about what's happening in our world today and uh, looking at it from different angles. And so we can't bring everything in and uh, and. And now I'm going to forget what I didn't bring in. Well, I mean, uh, oh, 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 I know what it is now, Tim. Wow. As, as soon as you as soon as you started to say as, as soon, soon as I as had soon it, as you were going to say something. Now I've got it. I can't let Tim talk. Uh, no, 
it's that they're, they're really, to me, there are two states that have, and they haven't done it with a wealth tax. They've done it with very super high millionaire tax taxes. But New York State and New Jersey have wrecked their economy in lots of ways. But one of the key ways has been chasing off millionaires and billionaires by having these super high taxes on millionaires. And I remember Tom Golisano, he's a, he was the creator of Paychecks, which was the, I never used him, but it was a very, very popular payroll program and payroll company that would run, you know, small businesses payrolls. And uh, when he de finally decided he just had had enough of New York State and moved out of New York State, it cost the state $600,000 a month in state taxes. So, you know, you, you got somebody paying that kind of level of state taxes and you decide you want a little bit more or you could lose that whole thing. And millionaires have fled in droves from New York and New Jersey. And, and frankly, those are two states that had a lot of millionaires because those have been big money states for a long time. Well, a lot of those millionaires are now living in Florida where there's no income tax. And, and so it's, we didn't address that at all in this commentary. We, you know, I think you can make tremendously good arguments against California having a wealth tax uh, to solve the problems that the politicians created in the first place. But there's also the fact that if you're thinking, gee, well, we won't have the same problems as California, but in my state, maybe we should have a wealth tax because then those rich people would pay. You have to realize that in the real world, Rich people know how to buy property somewhere else and move. They can always come back and visit. They can afford a hotel room. And so the idea that you're just that, that somehow millionaires and billionaires are just sitting ducks for politicians to rake over the coals and, and uh, you know, stick their hands in their pockets, it's not true. It doesn't work. And uh, so I'm, I'm kind of glad we didn't bring it in because we really dealt head on with the fact that these are problems created by bad policy, by bad politicians, not by a lack of money. But the truth is, these millionaire taxes and wealth taxes are destructive and are not going to be helpful. And, and the only way that you'd get the money is if you could somehow force all the millionaires to, to not be able to leave your state or if you did it nationally, like uh, Elizabeth Warren wanted to do, to not be able to leave the country. And you know what? They can leave the country, too. Uh, but, but even if you did that, that's not, you know, the, the truth is that's not where the money is. The money is in the great mass of people who have money, all the hardworking people in America who save money, who have a 401k or who don't have a 401k, but are putting something into a retirement account every every uh, month. There's lots of people like that. And and frankly, we don't need to be, uh, you know, we don't need to be fleeced either. But this idea that somehow it's it's all about, you know, making the wealthy pay. There have been a zillion different studies that show they, they just don't have that much money. Most of the money is going to come and not, not from the poor, because the poor don't have money either, but from the, the vast middle class. And so anytime I think about someone who's saying we need to tax the rich. I'm always thinking in my head, they're not going to be able to tax the rich. They're going to tax the people closest to the rich. And that's, that's uh, well, I'd like to be part of that group. I'm not sure I am, but I'm fighting like the Dickens to get into it. So, uh, you know, that's, that's the reality. When they're looking for more money in government, uh, you know, you're a fool if you think that that money is going to come from the rich. Yeah, I had a friend uh, who, uh, you met him once at my place. Uh, he believed that the tax rate was merely an ask, you know, and a bid and ask in the situation. Because you didn't really secure the taxes when you changed the tax rate. You're just changing a new ask price. And now, what is the, what is the rich person or what is the tax person going to do? Well, they're going to change their behavior because they probably don't want to bid the same thing as you want to ask. Right, right. No, the, I, everything in life is a negotiation, and and you have to think about what's the reaction of the other person. 
The title of Thursday's piece was California Scheming. Now that's a reference to, is that a Mamas and Papas song? California Dreaming, yes. Okay, well, Fridays you referenced The Music Man with Right Here in Corruption City. So you were on a roll this week. I don't know why you were going for uh, t song titles, but you do put a lot of song t songs up on Facebook, so I guess that's uh, that explains it. Well, you know, uh, I, I learned recently that other people have access to Facebook. I thought I was the only one. And so I was bringing these songs to my Facebook friends. And then someone told me, you know, we could go to, we could go to, to uh, YouTube and get these songs ourselves. I thought, well, geez, that'd be too much trouble. But you no, know, I love, I love music. And I often like someone will say something and I'll think of a song title as a response or, or, uh, you know, anytime there's an event, what's the best song that would go with that and so on. And I'm, I, I never learned to play an instrument. I don't read music. I don't know anything about music except that I love it and that I think of the different lyrics and the different uh, riffs and so on all the time. And, and it's a wonderful thing. And it shows that even ignorant people can enjoy things uh, because I'm ignorant of music, but I absolutely love it. And so oftentimes we have, uh, in fact, a few times you've, you've had to stop me. Paul, you, you can't go that far. Nobody's going to know that reference. And no, we can't put that link in. I'm, I'm probably overstating it. But sometimes I love to have the, you know, I'll think of a title that's the song title and, and it doesn't quite go. But I want it to go because I want to get that song in. Anyway. The, well, I don't anyway. know as much popular music as you do. So sometimes I actually have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> but, I got, but I got right here in Corruption City. I understood that one. <laughs> well, it's uh, and that's a great, great play, uh, the Music Man, but it it uh, it fit here, and uh, and of course that's a different. The play didn't really fit, as you pointed out. Uh, uh, the play doesn't really fit what we're talking about in the script, but it made for a nice little ending, and people probably won't be able to appreciate it unless they go to thisiscommonsense.org and actually read the script uh, in all its glory. And uh, and they might even have a chuckle here or there. But the the issue we're talking about is the former FBI counsel, Kevin Kleinsmith, who this week pled guilty to making a false statement to the Foreign Intelligence Service Court, which is the, the FISA court, FISA being the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, that our erstwhile uh, representatives in Congress enacted into law. And this is a secret court uh, where the FBI and CIA, other folks can go to this court <clears throat> and can get uh, permission to surveil uh, foreign folks. But oftentimes that ends up sweeping up American folks. And one of the folks that uh, the FBI went to get a uh, warrant to be able to surveil was Carter Page. And Carter Page um, was a foreign policy advisor uh, to the Trump uh, campaign, was not an integral part of the campaign, a you know, big, big part of it, uh, but was part of it. And he was someone who had contacts with some Russian folks. And so the FBI went to the FISA court and said, uh, basically, we think <clears throat> Page is a, you know, a, a stooge, an asset uh, of the Russians, meaning he's either working with the Russians, actively helping them, or is kind of a useful idiot that is giving information to the Russians and is being manipulated by the Russians. Well, it turns out neither of those are true and that Carter Page was briefing the CIA on his contacts with the Russians. So Carter Page wasn't a Russian asset. Carter Page was a CIA asset. And here is an attorney altering a document. Now, he said to the court, he said, look, I admit that I altered this document, but I thought I was altering it 
and I'm paraphrasing, you go to the go to this is commonsense.org and you can read the exact quote. But I'm just paraphrasing it. He says, look, I I didn't I didn't lie. I told the truth. I just, you know, I I but I did alter the document to put something into the document that I thought was true. Now, I have a question as to why he thought it was true, but let's find out what he put in there. Um, he put into this email he got from CIA liaison. And in this email, he put not a source. So he's telling, he's basically altering this document to say that Carter Page was not a source for the intelligence community which is a lie, which is not only not true, it's the opposite of true because he is a source. So here's a source for the CIA that the FBI uh, attorney is altering this, this document to say he's not a source. Now, it's one thing to say, look, I thought it was truthful what I was saying, but you don't, you don't alter documents. You don't alter documents and then turn it into a judge in a court without saying, hey, I altered this document to add some other very fun, useful, truthful information. When you are basically forging, surreptitiously altering a document that no one's going to know you've altered and giving it to a court, I don't think that looks even slightly okay. If everything that Klein Smith put into that document was absolute gospel, you're still altering a document without mentioning you're altering it and giving it to a judge for him to think it was the original document that came from the CIA. So now every article I read about this did not explain it like I've just explained it. It explained it kind of like this guy had done a little tiny thing, adding some information. I mean, this was kind of the feel I got it. You read these, read your paper, see what you, how, how you think they're, they're portraying it. But it was almost like it was kind of a minor thing. He added something. He thought it was true. Turned out it wasn't true, but big deal. But the big deal is that he added something. And so it is a big deal. And, and what was the purpose of this? As he's altering this document, what's the, what's the bottom line? What are they trying to do? Well, they're trying to get a warrant to do surveillance on Carter Page. And why would that be important? Would it be important because they're afraid he's some Russian asset? Well, you'd think if they were afraid of that, they would have asked around the, uh, the rest of the intelligence community. Hey, you know this Carter Page? Is he a Russian asset? Oh, no, he's your asset, Mr. CIA? Well, that settles the, 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 the case right there. So I'm very interested as to where Kleinsmith, the attorney, ever got this information that Carter Page was not the CIA asset that he was. That's one. But two, he's altering a document, the goal of which is to surveil Page and the whole predicate for surveilling page is that page is part of the trump campaign so the whole effort is to surveil the trump campaign i mean that just seems logical and obvious i have you know i don't i don't get to read everything the cia or the fbi cooks up i have to admit to everyone that i have wanted this whole story to go away because it just seems to me that that we all know the bottom line. And the bottom line is our government is doing all kinds of things in secret and we know they're crooked. And that's really the takeaway from this whole thing because so much of our politics is I hate Donald Trump. He's evil, he's a dictator, he's a Putin stooge, he's whatever, he's just the worst thing ever. Or I love Donald Trump. He's great. He's the first president who's been willing to fight, you know, against the deep state and against the, you know, the, the swamp and so on and so on. Trust me, I'm somewhere in the middle of that, uh, of, of those two uh, extremes. But here's the takeaway to this Kleinsmith guilty plea this week. And the, the fact that we now know 
that there was criminal activity in seeking to surveil Page and therefore the Trump campaign. We have a government that is doing things in secret that are criminal and that has the power to surveil presidential campaigns and has the power to do all kinds of other things that we may never hear about. I mean, think about the fact that if Donald Trump had not won the White House, I don't think anybody in their right mind thinks that Kleinsmith would have been pleading guilty this week to having altered what he sent to a judge to be able to get a warrant to surveil an American citizen. So we, we can disagree all day long about whether Donald Trump is the worst evil or the greatest good in the whole wide world. It doesn't matter. Where we should all be in 100% agreement is in realizing we have a doggone serious problem in Washington with the deep state, with a government that does more and more things in secret, in a government that we know was grabbing our bank records and our social media posts and our emails and recording our phone calls when all of those things were an unconstitutional violation of our rights. We know these things have happened. We know that if you are the president of the United States, it may happen to you. This is a very, very serious problem. And we have some fundamental things to deal with in terms of secrecy. Uh, I, I don't see how you can have a free society with the level of government secrecy and opaqueness that we have. But I just think we all on this, you know, as, as this weekends need to realize that now we know, just like we did when Snowden released the information about the NSA spying, we know that we have a government, an FBI, that will lie and alter documents in order to get their way and be able to look at a political campaign. I mean, this is, this is so potentially serious. Um, and, and look, I'm not, I'm not so worried about, you know, going back. And I mean, I, I, I think for the future, we have to go back and we do have to hold people accountable for what happened in 2016. But, uh, and since, but, the real issue is going forward, and that's one why we have to hold them accountable. But it's also why we have to start taking this seriously, and we can't allow the government or the political parties or the political class or establishment, whatever name you want to give the powers that be, we cannot allow them to separate us by Trump and anti-Trump and to get away with this kind of egregious behavior because it was done against Trump in the same way that we could not afford to let them get away with this behavior if it was done against somebody else. You know, if this was done against Joe Biden or against Hillary Clinton, that's a problem. That's a huge problem. That's the same problem. It doesn't matter who they're doing it to. If they have the power to do it, they can do it to you and to me. And, uh, and frankly, um, there's a lot of people who like Hillary Clinton who complain about what Comey did in coming out publicly, both in the summer and then right before the election, and talking about their investigation of Hillary Clinton. Trust me, I can't think of too many politicians I like less than Hillary Clinton, and politicians are not my favorite people. But I think what Comey did was wrong. And I think it was wrong because I do not believe our government has the right to come out and make harsh statements about people and say, well, they did this bad and that bad. You have a right to indict them and prosecute them. And if you can convict them, if they commit a crime, that's what you have a right to do at the Department of Justice. You do not have a right to decide that you don't have enough evidence to convict them, but you're going to hold a big press conference 
and say nasty things about them. And the fact that you're saying nasty things about Hillary Clinton, who I was not for and who I don't have much, much uh, uh, admiration for, doesn't matter. Now, think about that. That's coming out with a press conference and saying things that I think are true, but are nasty. I don't think the government, that's the government's place. What we're talking about with Clyde Smith and with this Russian investigation is actual criminal behavior, lying to a court in order to be able to dig and investigate and get more information. So this is much more serious than, of course, what Comey did. But again, we as, as, as American citizens, you know, it's just we are at a place we are at a place where I think our country matters a lot to the world, matters a lot to us. We are the sovereigns. We are the people who have to step up and say, no, we're not going to let you get away with it. And we have to be willing, regardless of our partisanship, to hold people accountable for what they do and have a, a standard, a principles of right and wrong that don't change because we like the politician or we don't like the politician. Well, there you are. This has been This Week in Common Sense, starring Paul Jacob for the third week of August 2020. My name is Timothy Verkula. You can find this podcast on Apple, Google, Stitcher, and other podcatchers, on SoundCloud, on YouTube, and at thisiscommonsense.org. Easy way to access it. Paul writes a column there five days a week, and on the weekend, this podcast in audio and video. Come back Monday. Come back next weekend. Thank you.